0: In this episode, I'm joined by Lars Ayer to discuss his recently published book, My Vey, alongside discussions on the philosophy of Simone Vey, theory fiction, and academia. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all this work possible, and if you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Lars Ayer, thanks very much for joining us on Medics Podcast. Thank you. We are going to be discussing your recently released book, My Vey, uh, which is a sort of theory fiction novel. Uh, a it's very difficult to describe, to be honest. It's a very strange novel. Um, but as per the title, it sort of gravitates around this figure in the novel called Simone Vey, and the philosophy of Simone Weil, and it also, it, uh, just from my own reading of it, gravitates around what it is to be an academic and a philosopher in the modern day in a very typically British setting. <laughs> uh, and there's it's very funny, um, and it's full with care and love and... Uh, even though it's written in a sort of aphoristic, quite biting style, there are constantly these moments of um, vulnerability, of the vulnerability of what it is to um, really be passionate about the problems that we're faced with with philosophers. And so, uh, before we get into this, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and why it is you decided to write *My Ve*. James, I'm
1: delighted you picked up on the um, the care. And the love and the vulnerability in the novel seems to me absolutely fundamental to it. That's what it's about. My background is in philosophy. I studied um, analytic philosophy, American style, um, Anglo style, British style, at the University of Manchester. And then I moved into continental philosophy, which I studied at the Manchester Metropolitan University, again in Manchester. And after that, I ended up teaching for many years philosophy here at Newcastle University. Um, and then, you know, eventually moved over to creative writing. Things weren't going that well for philosophy here at Newcastle. And it was a question of looking for somewhere to, to land, looking for somewhere where, you know, I could, I could just sustain living for for a while because things, things look bleak. So I came to creative writing, and that's where I am now, after writing a series of novels. I got into novel writing out of the experience of blogging. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I got a permanent job here at here at Newcastle in philosophy, I thought I really have now to try to put into practice some of the things I admire about the philosophies of, well, think of a, philosopher, think of a thinker, like Maurice Planchot. I thought, okay, I, I want now not just to write academic prose, but to try and write a um, literary philosophical prose, a literary prose which would be philosophical in many ways. And then I turned to blogging, which was just in its infancy at that point, you know, is the, the old days of blogging. I thought, here's the perfect medium. And what happened was, after a few years of uh, my Blanchotian um, attempt to write, uh, I found that people thought these, these blogs I was writing, these posts I was writing, were, were ridiculous. And they were laughing at me and, and, and taking the piss. And what they enjoyed was those elements of the blog where I took the piss out of myself, where I laughed at myself, where I laughed at my pretensions, where I, where I laughed at what it was I was trying to do. And these, this is a very British reaction to European philosophy, to continental philosophy. And here in the UK, we're very suspicious of anything which smacks of pretension. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And um, it's something which I I have in myself as well. I've I've thoroughly internalized this. So I also find myself, when I try to think philosophically, I find myself somewhat ridiculous. I began writing posts about this. And these eventually turned into my first novel, Spurious, which was published by um, the uh, Melville House who kept an eye in those days, and I suppose still now as well, on the blogging scene. So Melville House kept an eye out, looked to see what was going on. When I approached them with my novel, they, they knew who I was. They, they, they knew my work. And on from there, I did three novels, which are based on some of the material I was writing at the blog. You know, writing this material, was basically deprecating, looking at the conditions of philosophy in the UK, celebrating some of those departments in the UK, departments of, of continental philosophy, which were facing closure or had been closed. So the first three novels of mine were um, hymns of praise to what continental philosophy once was in the UK. And, um, you know, the struggles that the menu's departments have been through, that many of my um, friends and colleagues have been through, losing jobs, becoming redundant at the age of 45. So I wanted to celebrate that world, which was rapidly passing away when I published the first three novels.
0: I think there's something in the British, the British character that can't just own... Pretentiousness French the French can do it. the Germans have their own way of doing it, but British people we't we can't, we can't do it. so you've taken the other tact and just said, yeah, uh, this is some, this is all somewhat ridiculous. Let's take the piss out of it.
1: And yet at the same time, I greatly admire seriousness. It's something we do very well in popular music here in the UK, and some of the music I celebrate in, in my vase, the, the great Mancunian music of uh, Joy Division and New, New Order. Uh, The music of the fall, the music of the Smiths, which is music I celebrate because it is full of seriousness, particularly joy division, utter seriousness. It seems that in the UK, what we're able to tolerate is high modernism, European thinking, um, the art film in general, as it's mediated to us through popular music, Mm. So popular music is that that place where we're allowed allowed to to be, as it were, pretentious, where it is we're allowed to be serious. Because on the one hand, I would say that my work is always comic, but on the other hand, it's always admiring my work of seriousness, of passion, of commitment, of intensity, of ideas, of thinking. These are things I immensely admire and admired as I was growing up when I first encountered some of these Philosophical ideas through the music of these great bands these great acts that i admired growing up
0: mm. just a just a a tangential question off from that because there's there's something that just comes to mind because in your book in terms of the fact i mean i can't show the cover because this is just the reader's copy but uh i will just say oh hang on let's <laughs> okay there we go uh, i you, yeah, but you can see from that, that cover from those um, what what struck me about it really from the for those of you that are from the UK is the usage of a, a double decker bus, um, and I mean you know this is almost an archetypal British experience for for um, anyone who's lived in the UK or has come to the UK, uh, the sort of palpable uh, dusty misery of a bus and there is this under like the the we could say the geography of your book is a Mancunian sort of well to be honest this is cookie cutter pasted all over the UK now every city is pretty much the same but this this sort of uh yeah palpable rainy day misery and the bus I think personifies that and just the question from what you said about this pretentiousness and what you know what it there's something very British about your book is in terms of what we take seriously, you, you know, you said, interestingly, that we take pop seriously. It's it's um, sort of a mystery to me that Britain never had a Chiron or a Bernhard or a Celine. Britain never got a, a, a misery writer. And do you think that's just because, you know, we just have this misery anyway? So to 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 actually, I don't know, sort of explicitly write it down, you'd say that's too pretentious, that's too much. We can't deal with it. We you know, we have to ride this bus every day, destroying on your book. <laughs> um but there is a, there is a certain there is a, you know, I, I just found that the the river flowing through your book, if you want to put it that way, is that um hospital waiting room misery of being British. Which which builds character, I think.
1: Yeah, so this idea of waiting for buses, uh waiting on a bus to get your destination or waiting for that matter in a hospital room. This idea of waiting is something which I comically map on to the famous notion from Simone Weil of, of waiting. Mm. So when the characters discuss waiting, which is a, a, an idea which comes from, out of a French philosophical milieu, they're doing so in a very British location. They're doing so on the bus. And my characters resent being passengers on the bus to be a passenger is to be passive. You're almost a victim of the bus. You've got to wait for the bus, and when you get on the bus, you're trapped in some in some queue. It takes ages to get your de- 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 destination. It's a very prosaic environment. And this idea of the prosaic, the idea of um, the comic, are very strongly linked for me. In the UK, I think what we do quite well, again, is comedy. Um, in a lot of our popular culture, in film, in television, what we're very good at is um, pathetic comedy, Comedy about disappointment. Comedy about the humdrum, the dreary, the mediocre. What makes up our lives? Waiting around, um, going to meetings, sitting in a waiting room, waiting at the bus stop. You know, you're sitting there in a queue somewhere. There's a lot of this sort of waiting around, mm. uh, and this is what I wanted in in, in my fiction to use as a way of trying to think through what might appear to be much more lofty ideas, ideas, ideas which were produced in a French context. Mm. And for your international, um, your, your international listeners and, and viewers, you know, in the UK, France is a, is a world apart from what we have over here. We can barely believe that, well, I, I can barely believe that France exists. My characters cannot believe that Paris exists. It's this wonderland of ideas, this world in which it's possible to have a university job and not be totally engulfed in administration and meetings and bureaucracy. It's a place where ideas are valued, where there are peak time television programs about philosophical ideas where if you go to a bookshop and most of the bookshops remain independent in france apparently Mm -hmm. where if you go to a bookshop on the stands um you'll see philosophical work being displayed prominently where philosophy is taught to sixth formers at school the equivalent of sixth formers in france where philosophy is very much part of the um general intellectual discourse well, my characters are in the UK, my characters are on a bus, my characters are doing work in which no one's interested, which has no purchase whatsoever in, in British culture. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is something which appears to them to be not even anachronistic, because there never really was a time which you could study this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So what do they have? What, 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 what um, consolation do they have? Comedy. Mm. taking the piss out of themselves as being potentially pretentious taking the piss out of each other laughing at each other and in this way they stand in the line of a british comic tradition which which is which goes back right back to music hall
0: mm. what was it deleuze said about when you were, when you were mentioning that, that that notion of british people couldn't even imagine that france exists i think deleuze said something along the line of you know britain could or the uk could never be a philosophical nation because it's an island And your, your book, your book is very much the, the, you feel, okay, we're, we're, we're trapped, we're, we're in this place which is cornered off. You know, there is, we, every, there is something else out there, but we, we, we don't get to have that right now. Um, and it's very administrative in that way. But just, I mean, just to really open this up, because when it comes to philosophical discussion, there is, there's sort of these multitude of types and, and, and your book is is amidst many in a way, so you have philosophy proper, then maybe you have academic papers, then you have poetry, which is a whole other thing, and you now more recently, though you could probably find examples of it throughout history, you have what's being called theory fiction, which is what I would put your 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 novel into and, and of course, your other works on uh, Wittgenstein, Nietzsche. Um, what is it? that theory theory fiction can do for philosophy that those other types can't.
1: Yeah, it's for others to say, really. It's one of these things you can't say, you can't speak of your own work in this way. If I think of philosophy and fiction, I think of Plato straight away. I think of Plato, in Plato's work, of course, Socrates is a character, a literary character, as he was in the work of Xenophon. So Socrates is a as a character in the works of these of these Greek writers, and what we see in these um, in these great books by Plato is Socrates engaged in discussion, Socrates in the marketplace talking to whoever he meet, might meet, Socrates in more formal settings, Socrates surrounded by by um, acolytes, by admirers, and uh, refusing uh, their praise, ironically refusing to settle into a. Uh, a, um, a figure who can be taken for granted. So for me, when I, when, I, when I think of philosophy and fiction, it's 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 of Plato, I think. It's of Kierkegaard, I think. And the great works of Kierkegaard, where he, some of his works are themselves written by fictional characters that he, Kierkegaard, created. Some of his work stages dialogues between different um, characters that that Kierkegaard created. So this is the, um, the background to my work. It would be, for me, I'm thinking of Plato, I'm thinking of Kierkegaard's work. It's this kind of thing where ideas can be discussed now one one big difference between my work and um, the work of other uh, other thinkers people writing particularly in the continent is as we've discussed already this is taking place in a country which is which is more or less indifferent to European ideas now of course we have our own indigenous philosophizing tradition over here in the uk that's that's very important not to neglect but to european ideas we we, we, we don't really feel hospitable, hospitable, you know, in the the way that we might do to some of our indigenous ideas or or some of the ideas which come out of America. So these novels are written after um, a moment in which philosophy could be taken seriously in a world, in which philosophy was taken seriously. So that's why they're um, often very farcical. They're full of humor. This humor is uh, this this comic art um, reflects the character's own self-suspicion. Their own worry about pretentiousness, but there are moments in this novel—I think there are about five of them—where the characters do engage in something like a, a philosophical discussion, a serious philosophical discussion. I say there are about five of these um, set pieces. One's in a well, both two two of them actually in a restaurant um, in in Manchester, different restaurants, and the idea was to try and recreate a sense of intellectual life, showing yeah. a kind of intensity that breaks through the comedy. Because one of the things I'm very keen to do in this work of fiction is to try to break through that comedy, break through the laughter, break through the fears of pretension, to try and present something real. I'm mm-hmm. using the word real here in a manner which Simone Vey herself, the philosopher, might recognize. But what reality refers to is the reality of suffering people, the reality of those who are afflicted, the reality of those whose lives are absolutely miserable. Mm-hmm. And the question, one of the questions of the novel is, how do we attest to this suffering? How can we um, witness this suffering? How can we then act upon the call that is made upon us because of this suffering? So I wanted to break through um, humour, comedy, uh, bathos. I wanted to break through fears of pretentiousness um, by having my characters, and in particular the narrator, Johnny, having my characters heed this call from without, this call from the suffering other person.
0: Did you have any direct, like, uh, immediate british comedic inspirations
1: well these things i think you absorb just just by existing in the uk mm-hmm. i i've actually i've never really watched very much comedy oddly enough um mm-hmm. it's not a genre which interests me i buy this stuff from oxfam on dvd i watch a little bit of it i'm just in no interest i think it's because this is the medium in which i live mm-hmm. you know, this, is, this is this is just this is just life to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't really feel any need to um, acknowledge any predecessors in, in comedy. It's not a, it's not a genre which, in which I'm particularly interested. Yeah. I don't watch much of it. I mean, growing up, the, you know, Derek and Clive. I was going to uh, say, there was
0: a bit, I, felt, um, I felt there was a bit of Derek and Clive in your book.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is when I was a teenager. I've never listened to it since. You know, things like Monty Python, Spike Milligan, I watched when I was young. And when I, when I was little, with a good friend of mine, we used to make these comedy tapes. We do our own sketches. Um, when I was a child, you know, we, we, they're kind of funny. My friend, he's, he's kept a lot of these things, and they're they're pretty entertaining. A lot of these, absolutely filthy, but they're, they're amusing. So this comedy is just the world in which we live in the UK. If I get together with with friends who share my sense of humour, then this is how we talk. I mean, it's totally natural to us. The comedy is is, is not an effort to to. to access is an effort to shape into a to make it part of a narrative but it's just something which i think we, we take for granted over here if we're from, if from a certain background perhaps a certain class i'm not sure what it is mm-hmm. um then it's just what we do when we get together we take the piss out of each other
0: we do we do it's interesting when i've spoken to american friends and they've they've come to the uk for the first time one of the things i've heard a few times is why do british people try to make a joke out of everything you know, and and a lot of our humour, because some people will mistake you know, I remember when I worked as a carpenter and some of the jokes that we would make to each other, you know, the typical eight AM Monday morning, absolutely, you know, tired tired as hell and have that sort of boisterous British what we might call banter, but what we might call what we call banter and somehow understand on an intuitive level to other people is is would be borderline an insult or genuinely just an insult Um, I can't really repeat many of the jokes that we would make to each other because I'm not really sure how outside of the Britishness you wouldn't say that's not a joke at all you've just told him to I don't know well I won't repeat it on the podcast but one interesting thing you said there is about how you have these set pieces of intellectual life now the notion that you have these set pieces of intellectual life which are taking part uh taking place in a restaurant or taking place in just waiting room conversations it's interesting because the hotbed, if you want to put it that way, in which you're, you're another another sort of place that your whole book is taking part within is academia. And the irony is we should, in a, in a in a working world, we would say that academia is the place for intellectual discussion. But the fact that your book is amidst academia and all the time, you know, you have these sort of gripes with the business study students and really there's just this, this uh, bureaucratic administrative feel to it. And the fact that the intellectual life that should be in academia has now has to take place within restaurants or within these spontaneous moments sort of slowly reveals what has happened and what academia is so that's another question for you because academia is almost a character in this in this book what 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 is academia to you now.
1: Sure, I mean, academia in general has been taken over by management um, ideologies, management ideas, which were um, produced in the 90s, the 2000s. I actually spent a lot of time reading this stuff, reading the management, reading the management books when I was writing my previous novel, Nietzsche and the Burbs. spent a lot of time reading management theory out of great interest. And a lot of the phrases that come up in management theory uh, were adopted, they were used in academia initially with a sense of irony. So mm. back in the 90s. People would use these, these terms and, and they'd sort of wink or smile or, or put them in figurative quotation marks. But, you know, we've at least 25 years where these, these terms like best practice are used by academics without any irony or distance. Um, all these managerial terms, these managerial ideas have been completely embedded in academia. So academia has become just a branch of business studies in that sense. Now, there are discussions between people which might be about ideas, which might be passionate. But they tend to take place on the margins of academia in para-academic spaces, in spaces which aren't quite academic. So for me, you know, some of the great discussions which I which I witnessed was back in the blogging days. Mm-hmm. Is people like Levi Bryant. Uh, in those days, he blogged as larval subjects, and he went under the name of Synthome. And you see the quality of some of the discussions he was having with his interlocutors. It was absolutely marvelous. Back in those days, in the early 2000s, I worked at university. But at that time, I couldn't find anyone who was actually really into, really excited by, who felt passionate about literature. In the blogging world, I came across bloggers like Stephen Mitchell Moore, And there was passion about literature. That was really exciting to see, about literary writing. I couldn't see it in the world around me in academia. In academia, if you've got academic dinner parties, people are talking about like everyone else. They're talking about box sets. They're talking about um, TV series of various kinds. It's very rare you find people who are interested in talking about books. Now, things have changed for me. I work in creative writing, and the people are very passionate about literature and creative writing. So creative writing people are, are a breed apart. But in general, in academia... You know, things are not only um, business oriented, they're not only focused on on, uh, television series, this kind of thing. They're also academics are very serious. There's Mm. lack of humor. There's no humor. There's no laughter. Um, There's lots of just graveness and heaviness. Um, You don't, you don't, there's not much fun to be had. There's no one to roll your eyes with at meetings. There's no one to turn to in a spirit of camaraderie and to raise your eyebrows at a particular statement which comes up. You know, There's nothing like that. And we tend to work in a solitary way, sitting in our offices, um, very, very busy with a billion emails a day, with all these directives coming down from management. Um, there's not much time to have fun. So my way actually is almost nostalgic for a time in which um, there was you – know, I'm thinking of my own period as a as a PhD student, for a time in which um you could talk about things. You could you could talk in serious about serious intellectual matters. Mm. So that's what is something which um is missing, both the seriousness of talking about academic matters and also the comedy that should be directed at the business practices that the university is saturated with. Mm.
0: So why Vay then? Why Simone Vey? Why Simone
1: Vey Simone Weil is one of these thinkers um, alongside two other thinkers I've I've written about in the last three novels that I published. Uh, One was Wittgenstein, one was Nietzsche, and now we have Simone Weil. And these are thinkers who existed in a very uncomfortable relationship with the university, on the margins of the university. Um, And often, you know, in in the case of uh, my Weil, in in the case of Nietzsche, Nietzsche left the university behind. So these are thinkers who try and find a place in which they can think, and not only that, a place in which they can live in accordance with their thoughts. So these are thinkers for whom philosophy, in general, is something akin to what Pierre Ardo called in his very important study of the ancient of ancient Greek thinkers, um, a spiritual practice. Where philosophy is a practice of living, not merely um, uh, a body of a body of thoughts. So all these three thinkers in different ways allow us to question what the university is, what education is. And that's what I've done in this trilogy. Um, All three volumes are an attempt to think about, to rethink what education might be, what study might be, what it means to learn something, what it means to learn with someone who's um, much higher up than you philosophically, who's much more able than you are. So all three books are about these characters who come into contact with a, a lofty and important figure who seems almost a reincarnation of a figure from the past. All three novels are set in the present. All three novels are set in the UK. Um, in 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 Wittgenstein Jr., the characters are in their um, early 20s. In Nietzsche and the Burbs, the characters are in their teens. In My Way, the characters are in their, in their mid-20s. These, these are young characters coming into contact with characters uh, like uh, who are versions of these important lofty um, european style thinkers who embody high seriousness uh, who embody philosophical integrity in the way not only that they think but in the way in which they live their lives
0: do you think those characters are successful in actually um transmuting that seriousness across to british people do you think they- Well, the characters
1: around them are, 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 are comedic characters. So in Wittgenstein Jr., the characters around Wittgenstein are always fooling around. They're always drunk. They're always laughing at, philo- at, at, at philosophical ideas. But at the same time, the seriousness of my character Wittgenstein reaches them. And they venerate him. They regard him very highly. And my character Wittgenstein comes to regard them highly too. My character Wittgenstein comes to love them. In their very foolishness, in their, in their irreverence. And my character Wittgenstein, and that's the drama of that particular novel, turns to my characters for a sense of relief. For Wittgenstein, what my characters seem to show him is a possibility of a world after philosophy, after the great philosophical work has been done, a world which is almost like the Messianic Kingdom, where people are allowed to be light and frivolous and fun. Mm-hmm.
0: So what is what is what is the, in my Ve, what is the character's, what would you say is the character's reactions to Vey? So
1: my character Simone Vey. Ve, Ve uh, comes from a mysterious background. We don't know much about her in the novel. She's got a scholarship. She's won a scholarship. She's come to their university. So, the, so their university has been giving out scholarships on a program of study, which is called disaster studies. And we learn in the novel that disaster studies is an attempt for a philosophy department to rebrand itself in order to attract students to impress university management. So disaster studies is what what philosophy is called at this university. And various students have come to study disaster studies um, on the scholarship to do their PhDs. So this is a great opportunity. It's very hard to get funding to do PhDs. And my characters are unusual in that they are mostly working class. They are ethnically not not, uh, British in in origin, generally speaking. Um, So these are people who... I'm not, not, not the standard kind of person who goes to study philosophy and who ends up teaching philosophy. Philosophy is generally undiverse as a subject area. Uh, and in terms of class, it's very very rare to get working class thinkers uh, teaching in academia. And that's the background from which my characters come. Into their midst arrives Simone Veil, And my characters are naturally inclined to be sceptical, to laugh. But like the characters in my previous two novels, they become impressed by her seriousness. And even though they joke about it, her example is one which impresses them. And in particular, it impresses my lead character, my protagonist, Johnny. And Johnny, during the novel, begins to fall in love with Simone Vey. Simone Vey embodies something which he feels is missing in his life. A sense of meaning. That's what he's looking for. Johnny, my character, is looking for meaning, a sense of belonging. My characters are very eloquent on the subject of their despair. They talk about their despair constantly and they they draw on philosophical traditions of writing about um, suffering and misery and unhappiness and one of the resources they draw upon is gnosticism so my characters are actually named after gnostics um valentine marcia named after these, some of these famous gnostics gnostics lived around the period of um 200 years before the birth of jesus and about 200 years 300 years after and we you know it's regarded by the christians of that period as a range of heresies And one of the things that's most striking about Gnosticism is they regard our world, the world in which we live, as being evil and fallen. This is a disgusting world which horrifies the Gnostics. And what they do instead um, of of trying to belong to this world is turn to the genuine God, the real God. And the real God is someone who cannot communicate with us directly. The real God is outside of this world. Our world is ruled by a malevolent God of a lower level, the Demiurge. And the demiurge is in charge of this world in which we live, which is, as Philip K. Dick you know, called it in some of his Gnostic writings, this black iron prison. So my characters believe themselves to be living in this prison. Our world is a prison world. Our world is a world which can only lead to despair. And for that reason, what my characters look towards is something which might come from without, uh, perhaps a birth of transcendence, um, a, an opening within nihilism, some opening within nihilism, where nihilism seems to overlap in some sense with a religious dimension. And for this reason, because they come from Gnosticism, they find certain resonances with respect to their own ideas in the work of um, the character who appears amongst them, Simone Weil. So Simone Veys writings um, can seem, on a superficial um, reading, and my character can, can be very superficial, Simone Weil's writings can seem, on superficial um, reading, to also express this world disgust and world horror. But as the novel goes on, what we learn is that far from expressing a Gnostic view, what my character Simone Weil wants to express is something much more, um, much more surprising. It's a sense of love for the order of the world as it is, despite all its imperfections what my character simone veil espouses like her, um, her you know her, 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 like her, her her original the real um, simone veil is a love of fate a love of this world a love of the order of this world and what my character simone veil tries to do is to lift my characters out of their misery out of their out of their perception that life is terrible and in particular she wants to do this with johnny and that for me is the most important scene in the novel It's a scene where Simone and Johnny are sitting in the garden and um, Johnny's declaring his love to Simone. And Simone is trying to save Johnny and try to show him that his worldview, that his view of the world as being bleak and terrible, is utterly at fault. What she's trying to do is to help him. And this is one of these scenes about education, which are are frequent in my my fiction. She's trying to help him see that he's got it wrong about the world. So Simone Weil, in that sense, in my novel, is trying to bring this message of of hope, of meaning, of order to my characters.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you okay if I talk about spoilers? Of course, please do. Well, yeah, okay. So f- from that, you know, this sort of uh, trying to alter his worldview or try to change Johnny's worldview to say, look, you, you've seen this all wrong with Weil acting as sort of the divine, divine spark. Um, you know, smuggled in by Sophia in the Gnostic, the Gnostic sense. Um, this, to a certain extent, this seems all very noble. But right near the end of the novel, spoiler alert, Ve gets stabbed. <laughs> so, yeah, there is a question of well, who who is still correct in this sense? Um, and this notion of Simone Vey or the character of Simone Vey getting stabbed is really um, it's not a because she's um. She's such an innocent image without trying to seem stereotypical and sort of coy. I mean, the notion of her getting stabbed is is, uh, and throw almost like in a Heideggerian sense, like throwing Simone Weil into what is kind of uh, reminds me of the novel Lanark by um, Alistair Grey of, you know, like Manchester has become this sort of level of hell or maybe even a purgatory. Mm. And there is this uh, atmosphere of apocalypticism throughout your book, um, you know, this call to the Center for Disaster Studies as well. Throwing Vay into that world, and it really, I guess the question for me is, you know, maybe one of, of success as to whether or not, you know, after this stabbing, any any notion of Vey's care for the world has, has really taken root.
1: Mm. So this is a novel in which um, Simone Vey's ideas are discussed, in which Simone's vision of life is something um, discussed as well. But I don't I don't want to endorse Simone Vey's arguments at all. It's, it's you know, these three novels I've just written, about mm. philosophers who are very, very far from my concerns. I don't believe in this idea of cosmic order, you know, in, in, in Simone Weil's mm. sense. And that puts a, a complete barrier between me and her work. So for me, Simone Vey is, is a figure who's, I, I, I love her work, I love reading it, mm. but it's very remote from my sense of how things are. Mm. So I, I don't regard her work as being relevant in it, you know. And I find Simone Vey herself is, is a curiously death haunted figure. Now, in the novel, Um, Simone Vay, my character, is a PhD student, but she also volunteers in a direct action charity. And these charities actually do exist. I've known people involved in them. And these charities are about giving immediate alleviation to people who live on the streets, to people who are homeless. Um, So you go straight out on the streets and you're bringing people money. You're bringing people food. You're giving them something there and then without any mediation, without requiring them to go to a homeless shelter. So it's this is an immediate form of charity, which of course is immensely risky. So Simone Vein, in the novel tells us that she goes among the poor, that she tries to listen to them, to heed them. That above all is so crucial to her. What Simone Vein, in the novel tries to do is to give time and space to heed the other, to heed these poor suffering people, to spend time with them in order to listen to them, to listen to their testimony, to listen to their sense of what it means to be afflicted and to um, then try to give them whatever help she can. So that's crucial for me that this Simone is someone who is out there in the world, exposing herself to these dangers. But at the same time, Manchester, the Manchester of the novel is a terribly grim and risky place. And that inevitably what's going to happen to her is something violent and unpleasant. Mm. So, you know, we we, we know it's going to happen. It has to happen. It's it's something which is foreshadowed throughout the novel. We know that she's not going to meet a happy end in that sense. So yes, indeed, Simone gets stabbed, as of course she would on the mm. street. She's dealing with people with severe mental illnesses and addictions and all kinds of problems. So in one sense, you could say what, that's what Simone's doing is naivety itself, mm. is total foolishness, is totally quixotic. The idea that you can just go onto the streets, give people some money, give people some food, listen to people and thereby solve their problems instead of, instead of doing something much more practical like leading people into a centre, like constructing suitable housing for people, like helping keep people come off their um. Drugs and, and, and alcohol addiction. So in that sense, Simone Vey is presented as a figure who's wildly delusional and at the same time wildly admirable in her charitable work. And here in the novel, one of the things I wanted to do is to celebrate the life of a friend of mine now dead who is embodied in the character called Michael. He's a good friend of mine, and uh, I lived in his house, like my character Johnny lived in, in Michael's house in the novel, and um, my good friend David, you should bring people into the house, who are street drinkers, um, addicts, and try to give them a place to live, um, away from their, um, their, their their former associates, away from the streets, and just try to give them some sort of comfort, some sort of security, a few weeks of peace. And I greatly admired. Uh, this act of very practical and very risky um, charity. So I wanted to bring that to life in my fiction. That sense in which you can try and do these things. It might be naive. It might be foolish. But it's also, in another sense, wonderful, impressive, marvellous.
0: But over it's marvellous. But over a certain span of time, eventually, it becomes sort of transparently ridiculous.
1: It can do. Now, this is this is a thing. I mean, what I heard people saying, people who are, who are friends of um, the, us in the house, they say, "You're stopping people reaching rock bottom. You're stopping people really reaching that point at which, and um, they then turn for help to institutions like for um, drug uh, drug anonymous, alcoholics anonymous, these sorts of um, these sorts of, uh, of uh, groups." So, what you're doing is actually forestalling, you're, you're delaying that moment in which someone will say, "I simply cannot go on." Mm. And that was the the criticism levelled at the the House in general, by taking people in who were alcoholics, who were drug addicts, was simply just delaying that moment in which they might confront their situation and do something about it. At the same time, this is the other thing, look, uh, even people who go along to AA or NA, they often lapse back into former habits, and the rates of, of recovery are not always encouraging. So to give a few weeks to someone, to give maybe a, a year to someone in such an environment, isn't that at least something?
0: What was your opinion after leaving that sort of that household of of I mean, I guess it's a broader question of just the success of whether or not the sort of this sort of modern nihilism can be overcome by care. I mean, what is your mm. opinion of whether or not that can be successful, or is it sort of still quite vague for you after having that personal experience of that household?
1: No, I thought it was a wonderful thing to give people a sense of home.
0: But was it successful? But was it, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. I don't think anyone would deny mm. that uh, that sort of St. Francis outlook of uh, going towards poverty is a wonderful thing. But that doesn't make it successful or practical. It
1: Did depends you- on the measure. It depends on the measure of what you deem to be. What 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 is the uh, criterion which defines success? Does it mean lasting sobriety? Does it mean being able to go back into the world and and uh, and do a job or form relationships with other people which are positive? In that sense, maybe not. Maybe it's just a it's an oasis in the desert. It's, it's something where you, you you stop for a while, then you move on. There are people who came out of the house and they, they did well with their lives, but often they were people who um, had to go through this this terrible dark night on their own. And eventually come to that moment where they, they turned their, turn their lives around. So this was possible. But yes, I, I still admire this impractical, wild, foolish, crazy way of taking people in, just taking people in who, who were needful. I was one of these people. I mean, I didn't have any problems with drugs or alcohol. I had a problem with being burgled over and over again, and having all kinds of problems with my housing. I remember moving three times in a, in, a, in about three months and having all kinds of issues with um, living in very grim areas. People breaking in. Uh, so I was very, I felt very fortunate to to find this house in which to live and spend some years in in peace and tranquility. So there are people like me as well. who just need somewhere to to be. So I felt mm-hmm. extremely grateful for that, and I was wanted to pay tribute to my to my good friend David. Who died back in the early two thousands, and that was part of this novel is to, is to pay tribute to him, mm. to say what he did in providing people with the home was a very important thing.
0: So, what do you think that says of the the love that's running throughout the novel? Do you think that it um, reveals it in in all its vulnerability and all its not to be too crass but it's often it's stupidity like you know this mm. sort of the decisions vay is making if you were to hear them you go to be honest it's a silly decision these days but there is no way you if you were to try be more pragmatic about the decision you would no longer be loving it would once again fall into this sort of academic administrative thing mm. that we've been talking about and love can't be taken into that you know it can't be subsumed into the yeah
1: the, i think the, here of um well, first of all, Simone Weil herself says, you know, you, the call of the afflicted other is something you, uh, you cannot think about theoretically. You feel it, rather than that you actually hear it. It's something you hear. Um, you hear the the call of the other, and it's something which you can't intellectualize. But I also think here of um, the great contemporary thinker, um, one of the best philosophers of, of recent times, Ivan Illich. Now, Ivan Illich is a figure who's long fascinated me, and what always interested me was that was a the transcription of his of his last interviews where Ivan Illich, who was himself a, um, originally as a priest, he was a missionary, he trained missionaries in South America, where, uh, where um, Illich at last talks about religion, talks about faith, talks about the Bible. Now, Illich had been excommunicated because of his, um, the way he was teaching missionaries was regarded as being very heretical. and He, he was cut off from the church. And he always said, you know, our deference to the church, he still admired the church in many ways, our deference to it, I won't speak about the church ever. I won't criticise it, but very late on, he gave a series of interviews as he was dying in which he actually discusses his relationship to Christianity. And one of the things he mentions there, uh, one of the things he retells, is that the story of the Good Samaritan. And what he says about the Good Samaritan is the Samaritan is the one who's able to respond to the, um, the, the, the beaten person, the person who's afflicted by the side of the road. And that is a response which which emphasizes, occurs in the guts. is something which occurs in the heart of the human being. And by responding to this other, who is not of the um, same background ethnically as a Samaritan, by responding to the other in a way which cuts across these these ethnic backgrounds, these religious backgrounds, what we find is a new model for, for friendship, for relationships between people, for a relationship of love, of agape, where you love the other, no matter who the other is, it's an incredible moment. According to Illich, when we we talked about this this moment in the in the Gospels, where when Jesus is asked, "Who is my neighbor?" and so when Jesus is asked, "Who is my neighbor?", the neighbor is anybody, anybody suffering, anybody injured, anyone lying by the side of the road, no matter whether you are not whether or not you are ethnically linked to them, they become your neighbor. So Illich argues that this is a primordial moment. This is the best. The best thing about humanity is that we are able to respond in this way and act in this way. But he also argues that once you get institutionalized religion, once you even get hospitals to help look after the injured, then you've corrupted the best. The best becomes the worst. Once you have any kind of institution that mediates between you and and your neighbor, then you've lost the primordiality of that relationship. So Illich is very famous for his critique of different institutions, educational institutions in particular, but also governmental institutions, institutions which concern um, energy and water. Uh, And what he does in his last interviews, Illich says, it all actually is based on the church originally, Hmm. it's the church. That's at the heart of my thought. It's about the corruption of the church when the best turns into the worst. So the best of humanity is, as you say earlier, that St. That, that Francis-like um, abandonment. It's what you know, we find in, in, G, in the figure of Jesus, the foolishness of Jesus. It's what we find in the figure of the um, holy idiot, particularly in orthodoxy. The holy idiot is someone who tries to, to, to live the life of Jesus in the, in the apparent foolishness of Jesus' life. So that's the idea. You're living the life of a fool who by any normal reckoning is simply doing something stupid. So the a, a, a profound stupidity to the Samaritan is a profound stupidity in helping the other in the way that Simone Veil herself advocated um, helping the other.
0: So I was going to ask there about you know whether you know this notion of uh, the call to the other occurs in the guts, occurs in the heart. You hear it, mm-hmm. and how how that's dampened. You know how what it is that. Um, deafens that, being able to hear that. But it seems that what deafens that is uh, in abstract the institution, whether in the Illich sense it's the Mm -hmm. institution of the church or if it's the academic institution that says here's how to be ethical, A, B, and C. And so from that is the question of um, to overcome what many consider to be, um, whether or not we agree with it or not, the, the supposed nihilism of the modern world isn't something that can be structured it has to be you know what i'm just going to be a fool there's my meaning i'm going to be an absolute fool for it i don't care about, i'm not going to it, to me to me personally it seems like a complete ignorance you know there's my meaning i'm going to be a fool for it i'm not going to listen to any someone who says don't go down that road because you might get stabbed right that's quite literally what you would have to ignore but to overcome nihilism in the sense of they within this book is just going to be the fool,
1: yeah. So that's the idea. So mean, it's a, there's a there's a sense in which in which meaning is absent. Um, is this something which which seems to occur you know, as as a notion? Notion of nihilism appears in, in the nineteenth century, and it seems to be linked to the the idea of disenchantment. The world is no longer um, the world is, is something which can be explained scientifically using scientific laws, um, and these like these these this, the, the capacity of science to predict. Uh, what the world will do and to explain what the world is seems to be incredibly powerful, unimpeachably powerful and it seems to leave little room then for what a human being might be. We get in Dostoevsky's work in um, Notes from Underground um, a character who what Dostoevsky wants us to do as we read his character um, is to work out for ourselves the sense in which determinism this idea of determinism something which, which, which which is pure nihilism and Dostoevsky wants to say there is still, nevertheless, a freedom, even, even in this character. Um, and in Nietzsche's thought, what we try and find, what Nietzsche tries to give us is a sense in which, okay, so science can explain everything, can explain the whole world, and maybe we're not free at all. There's nevertheless some degree of freedom in the way in, the way in which we might affirm everything that's happened to us. So there's this, this power of affirmation in Nietzsche is the idea in which we can say yes to the world. We say yes, even though things might be thoroughly determined, we have the freedom to accede, to consent to the world as it is, and even more than that for Nietzsche, um, that we can that we can will that everything that's happened could happen again in exactly the same way. This is the famous, um, for me, it's, it's, I, I think it as a spiritual exercise in the sense in which Pierre Adot identifies, this famous moment of the eternal return of the same. But what you're doing is affirming the world exactly as it is. Now, in contrast to this idea, um, I, w- I, would put, uh, I, w- I would put what we find in Jewish philosophy, in the philosophy of Jewish thinkers from the early 20th century, Rosenzweig, uh, Sholem, but also in Jewish writers like Kafka. And that's the sense in which nihilism has some secrets. And indeed, nihilism might be quite close to, to religion in various ways. That nihilism is valuable In the what it does, it disenchants our relationship to the world around us. It means we're no longer um, subject to the world. We're no longer enthralled to the world. We're no longer sitting there thinking, oh, the world's a wonderful gift," and the world in and of itself is good. So these these thinkers they draw nihilism closest idea of religion, and many of the thinkers that come out of this movement. And I'm thinking, in the end, you know, of, of Emmanuel Levinas, they say the way out of nihilism is in the relationship to the other, to the human other, and that's what breaks our love of the world. So I want to make that contrast really clear. Um, what we get in, in in response to nihilism is an attempt to justify the world as it is, um, to uh, to for us to affirm the world as it is. I, I wrote about this in my novel, Nietzsche and the Burbs, um, in some detail. And then in in Jewish modernity, there's a sense in which we have to break from the world. And the only way we can do this is by opening up this this nihilism, opening up this void. And the reason I was drawn to Simone Weil is Simone Weil is so similar to these thinkers. And these thinkers, are, for me, this, this is my home in philosophy. This is where I live philosophically is when these, these Jewish modernist thinkers um, Simone Vey is close to them similar to them in some ways but what she tries to do is to um, bring back a positive sense of God a positive sense of meaning from this nihilism and that's that's what that's why Simone Beauvoir became a really fascinating figure for me I thought I really want to work on her I want, to, I want to work with her writing I want to do I want to see how she does this and whether she can be successful
0: where do you go from there
1: from Simone Weil's thoughts. that's the question. Well, I want now to to really um, bring into dialogue this Nietzschean, i also call it Batayan, Deleuzian account of um, you know, the, the attempt to, to to work with just the world as it is, naturalism, you can call it, mm. to bring that into dialogue with this Jewish tradition. So trying to try find, try and try and do that. So my novels, Nietzsche and the Burbs, presents a Nietzschean view where we see a character trying to undertake this eternal return, and here's a spoiler, failing. And in the Simone veil novel, we find um, Simone Weil trying to live the life of a fool for, for Christ, a fool for Jesus, and again failing. So I want to, that there's, there's actually an implicit dialogue between the two novels, which is about the nature of compassion, because of course Nietzsche was very, very suspicious of compassion as an idea. Uh, he worried about pity. He thought that what pity does is to um, uh, make us um, hate the world, uh, dislike the world, uh, to worship suffering. Uh, so there's a dialogue between the two novels. I want to make this more explicit in in my next novel. What I want to do is to actually present these two views, and um, and and bring them into a much more explicit dialogue. Because these are views in which um, this this is a dialogue in which I feel myself very much caught up. Uh, and I, I feel this this the, the philosophy of, um, of of Jewish modernity to be a, a philosophical home for me. It's one which I don't really understand. If I, if I'm going to try and understand it, I have to test it and, and work against it and try and find counterexamples. So that's what I'm, that's what my attempt will be in in my next novel.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add about uh, myve, which you feel we've uh, skipped over, or is is key that you'd like to add in?
1: I think we've covered almost everything. The fact that it's comic, the fact that it presumes no philosophical background whatsoever might be important. Mm-hmm. That um, anyone can read this. This is deliberately um, written, so, so it's understandable by anybody. It presumes no philosophical background, so it's comic. It's open to any reader. But I think, above all, for me, it's supposed to be emotional. It's supposed to connect with people emotionally. My hope is it's very, very moving, and that, that my hope my hope is that when you put it down, you feel profoundly moved. Um, that these are this is, this is not just this is not just about intellectual ideas. It's not about philosophy as a theoretical enterprise. It's about the nature of suffering. It's about how we might respond to people who suffer around us and to our own suffering. How we can respond to the felt lack of meaning. So what I hope to, be to have been able to um, do is to draw my reader into this into this debate. Um, it's more than a debate. Um, draw my reader into a sense of, um, of what horror might feel like. Uh, draw my reader into a sense of what it is it might mean to long for something other than horror. So that's the hope for me. Um, this book works affectively. It works by emotion. It works by making people feel the situation in which these characters are in, and in particular, in the character of Johnny. My hope is that my character, my readers will fall in love with this character, and that's my hope. That he's an appealing character who 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 says something that we all want. That we all want in some way. I've talked about this idea of a home. That's what Johnny wants. He wants a place to be, a place to be with me, which has meaning a place to be where he can just rest and live and take a breath and be calm. So that's my hope that my readers will be moved by Johnny and perhaps see something of, of themselves in Johnny.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to finish up and it's a good way to draw people into the book. Um, so I will put links for my Ve in the description below and a big thank you to uh, the publisher for sending me an advanced copy. Um, but I feel, yeah, we've covered we've covered everything, in and unless there's anything else you'd like to add, um, I feel it's a good place to finish up.
1: Thanks, James. That was fantastic. Thank you all. Thank you.